Well, today marks our last in the book of Hebrews. Believe it or not, we began our journey exactly a year ago. First Sunday in September of 2014, and this will be our 41st sermon in this series. And my prayer has been and continues to be that through these expositions from the pulpit and through our discussion of these texts in our connect groups, that your understanding of your faith in and your love for the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ has grown stronger and deeper than ever before. As you saw in the video at the start of this service, Jesus is better. And that has been the dominant theme running through every single chapter of this glorious book. It has not been an easy journey. Hebrews is arguably the most difficult book in all of the New Testament to work through. It's a complex book. But if God has been pleased to use these sermons to fix your eyes upon Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the Father, then all of our labors in the study and from the pulpit and in our connect groups, they've been well worth the journey. These last six verses of this letter contain a benediction, followed by a personal postscript. Now while the benediction is magnificent, the postscript can can come across as rather mundane. So what we're going to do is we're going to give the majority of our time to verses 20 and 21 to that benediction, and we're going to transition directly from its soaring heights into our our worship and coming to the table and then worshiping again. But I do want to spend just a few moments and walk you through verses 22 to 25, making some quick observations from what are also God-breathed scriptures. So I'm just going to make about four observations. Four, five, six at the most. From verses 22 to 25. First, throughout this study, I've been referring to Hebrews as a book, but as I said a year ago in our introductory sermon, it's not really a book, nor is it really a letter. It's more like a sermon that that was written down and sent to this church, presumably in Rome, that was intended to be read aloud as the church gathered together for worship. The author himself in verse 22 refers to it as a word of exhortation, which is a phrase that was also used in Acts chapter 13 and verse 15 to refer to the sermon that Paul preached in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. So it's a sermon, a written sermon. And I would direct your attention to the fact that the author calls it a brief word of exhortation. Though, if you were to read it from start to finish with feeling, it would take you well over an hour to read from start to finish. So, according to the biblical authors, a brief sermon is that which is somewhere in the neighborhood of an hour, so no more complaining when I hit about 45 minutes. According to the Bible, in fact, I am a brief preacher. Number two. Though we don't know who the author of Hebrews was, I told you again a year ago, my best guess is Apollos. 
we do know that even though he was not an apostle, because he was not an eyewitness of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, he tells us as much in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2. He obviously ran in apostolic circles because he was personally acquainted, verse 23, with Timothy. Therefore, in all probability, he was also closely acquainted with Paul because Timothy was most often at Paul's right hand. This is one of the primary reasons why the early church received the letter to the Hebrews, the sermon that was written and sent to the Hebrews, and why it was eventually received into the New Testament canon as inspired scripture, because even though it wasn't written by an apostle, it was so closely connected with the apostle Paul's ministry. Third, it's obvious from this postscript and from all that has come before that the author dearly loves this congregation. Twice in this Last few verses, he mentions his desire to be restored to them, verse 19, to come to them again soon, verse 23. Four times in, the, in, in this book, he has referred to the church as his brethren. Once he even calls them his beloved, which tells them that he doesn't view this church as unregenerate troublemakers but rather as his beloved family in the faith. Which is interesting because he's written to them very, very strongly, hasn't he? He has said some very severe things, given them very severe warnings, which tells us that that warning in all solemnity and all severity is not antithetical to love. In fact, that's what love demands. This is why he urges them, verse 22, to bear with this word of exhortation. He sends his greetings to all the saints in verse 24. Sometimes love demands strong and severe warnings. And strong and severe warnings are given best in the context of a loving relationship. Fourth. Notice that little sentence at the end of verse 24. Those from Italy greet you. Now, if I'm correct, and I could be wrong, that Apollos is the author, then those from Italy probably refers to at least Aquila and Priscilla, who were close friends of Apollos and were originally from Rome. We read in Acts 18.2. But they were, they were Christian workers and missionaries who appear in the book of Acts in, in uh, in the city of Corinth, and then also in Ephesus, and then even back in Rome itself, when Paul writes to Rome in Romans 16.3, he tells them to greet Aquila and Priscilla. Again, this helps us to anchor this, this book in the apostolic ministry. Now finally, from the postscript, because we have focused so intensely on, on suffering in these last chapters of Hebrews, I want to point to you just one further evidence that following Christ can be a dangerous business. Look at verse 23, where the author informs the church that Timothy has been released from prison. Now specifically, I just want you to notice two small details in verse 23. First is this, our author doesn't say much about Timothy's imprisonment, he just mentions it matter-of-factly as if it were a perfectly normal thing for Christian pastors to be in prison. And second, notice that as soon as Timothy was released from prison, 
He simply picked up where he left off and he resumes his ministry. Such that the author hopes to take a journey with him to Rome in order to strengthen the church. In other words, prison didn't scare Timothy away from the ministry of the gospel. It tells us that Timothy took to heart the words that Paul wrote to him in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8, or rather chapter 1 and verse 8, where he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Timothy took those words to heart, and so must we. Just one more reminder in a book that has been thick with suffering. That to follow Christ is to bear a cross. Timothy knew it, and we've got to learn it. But the postscript, verses 22 to 25, that's not, that's not the true ending of the masterpiece that is Hebrews. Not, not really. The true ending, the soaring conclusion, is found in verses 20 and 21 to that great benediction that we find in those words. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The congregation to which the author wrote was in grave danger. We've seen that at a number of points throughout the last year. They were drifting away from the word of the gospel. They were in jeopardy of irrevocably exchanging the glory and the grace of the new covenant and returning to those cold and lifeless forms of of old covenant Judaism. They were in danger of trading their birthright, remember like Esau in chapter 12, their birthright of an everlasting inheritance of eternal joy for the single meal of temporary comforts and momentary pleasures which can never satisfy the soul. And so the author picked up his pen and his parchment and he, and he crafted this God-breathed masterpiece in which he declares to the, them the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and of the new covenant in his blood. And he exhorts them to persevere in their faith in Christ and he warns them against falling away. He then wrapped up his sermon and he threw it out like a lifeline to Rome if by God's grace, this church might reach out and take hold of the rope which chapter 6 is anchored behind the veil in heaven. This is the reason for the note of urgency that, that just permeates this entire letter. And I pray that over the last year, you, you have felt something of that urgency as we've worked our way through these verses. I pray that you have felt the weight of necessity bearing down upon you in these exhortations to finish the race because it's he who perseveres to the end who will be saved. It's he who finishes the race who will enter into everlasting glory and joy. To, rot, to drop out of the race is to drop out of the faith and a hope that's been impressed upon you. I pray that you've even felt the flames so to speak, in the warnings against apostasy. Where he says to, 
to turn away after having received the knowledge of the truth is to trample underfoot the Son of God and to regard as unclean the blood of the covenant by which you were sanctified. The book of Hebrews was written so that we would make every effort by grace through faith to persevere in Christ. No matter what, through through whatever suffering by God's providence He may bring into our path to the very end. That's the purpose of this book. But, the author concludes this word of exhortation, not as I would have expected with a final plea to persevere or a final warning against falling away, but rather with an invitation, catch this, to rest. An invitation to rest in God's infallible promise to save His people, to preserve them in faith to the end, and to bring them into their everlasting inheritance. Now, why does He do that? Wouldn't ending on a note of warning be more effective? No. Because perseverance does not finally depend upon our efforts. And our striving and our determination to grit our teeth, pull up our bootstraps and stick it out to the end. That's not what perseverance is. Perseverance, in fact, is not about us at all. It depends upon God's sovereign purpose to save us and to keep us by the all-sufficient provision of His grace. That's why he ends with this benediction. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through verses 20 and 21, and I'm going to show you six encouragements this morning to rest in the sovereign purpose of God and in His divine power. Not your power, His divine power to bring you safely into the joy of His everlasting presence. My prayer this morning, my overwhelming desire for myself and for you, my church, is that you would walk out of here holy and happy and confident that it is God's eternal purpose from the foundations of the world to everlasting to save His people and to keep them saved. Not one of them will fall. And we're going to seal those promises at the table where he says as much. This is the blood of the everlasting covenant. So let's walk through this benediction. And I want you to take, I want you to take these truths like stones and place them as a foundation under your feet so that you can walk out of here standing on something firm. Something that will last when the waters rise and when the winds come and when suffering happens. My God will keep me to the end. Why? That's what I want to show you. Number one, you can rest happy and hopeful this morning because you have a God of peace. I just want you to stop right there and consider what Good news that is. This is the very foundation of your salvation. You are here this morning, alive in the Spirit, believing the gospel, justified in Christ, possessing the forgiveness of sins and the hope of everlasting life for no other reason than that God is a God of peace. 
and not of enmity. If he were not a God of peace, we would have no hope at all. Only fire and wrath and destruction. God would destroy us in judgment for our sin and he would be perfectly just in doing so. But he desired peace. He desired peace with us in Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. For if while we were yet enemies, in other words, we're still hating him while he's loving us. We're still hiding from him while he's seeking us. Because he's a God of peace. If while we were yet enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. While we were still the avowed enemies of God, rebels against his sovereign rule, God loved us and he desired to be at peace with us, and so he reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. And so to those of us who believe this morning, this is great encouragement for us to rest Because salvation depends not upon the depth of my love or the strength of my faith or the resolve and quality of my character, but rather upon the unchanging character and nature of our God who is a God of peace. He was yesterday, He is today, and He will be forevermore. In other words, you can have confidence that God's affections towards you will not change. They will never change. Because our God is the unchanging God, and he declares here at the beginning of this benediction, which is here, for your happiness and hope, he declares, I am a God of peace. And to those of you who are not yet reconciled to him, you're like the prodigal son, off in the far country, but by God's grace... You've been awakened to your hopeless condition you have. In the words of Luke 15, come to your senses. And you, like him, are wondering, will the Father even receive me back? If I go back to him confessing my sin, is he going to turn me away? Because that's, that's what he would have every right to do. This gives you hope this morning that if you come, you will be received. You will not be rejected because God desires peace and not enmity. So you should never fear to come to him, unbelieving sinner. And you should never fear to come back to him, stumbling Christian, thinking that he will reject you and turn away from you and withhold the peace and the reconciliation that you long for. Anyone, anyone who desires peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ may have it. You have only to come. Number two, the God of peace sent the great shepherd to save the sheep. If you want a rock solid assurance of your salvation, you want want an unmovable bedrock on which to rest your faith, I can think of no better place in all of Scripture to turn than John chapter 10, which I believe was in the author's mind when he wrote this benediction. So the Gospel of John wasn't written yet. Ah, but when Jesus says something as amazingly wonderful as what he says in John chapter 10, do you not think that his followers repeated it everywhere they went? 
He knew the great shepherd discourse. He knew it. And that's in his mind when he says that this God raised up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. At some point in the future, Lord willing, we're going to spend some time in John chapter 10. It's, it's too good to stay away from. We'll plumb its glorious depths together. But this morning, I just want to give you some highlights of what Jesus says there that are in our author's mind when he writes here that God raised up from the dead or brought back from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. He has in mind Jesus' good shepherd discourse in John chapter 10. So here's what Jesus says, just some, some summary points of what Jesus says about himself as the good shepherd in John 10. He says that the Father, that is the God of peace, has a chosen flock that he has given to the Son who is our great shepherd. This is all of that, those whom the Father has given me talk that, that he uses throughout the Gospel of John. And I'll just say to you that if you're, if you're uncomfortable with the doctrine of election, I understand that it is at first an uncomfortable doctrine, but I will also say that if you're uncomfortable with the doctrine of election, you're going to struggle with the Gospel of John because it is all the way through. And it's all the way through John chapter 10. And it permeates most of the New Testament. But this is clear. Jesus says the Father has given to him a flock. And that this flock belongs to him. They are his sheep before he ever calls them by name. And before they ever hear his voice. And before they ever come out and follow him. In fact, he says in John chapter 10 and verse 26 that they are his sheep before they ever believe. They don't believe in order to become his sheep They believe because they are already His sheep given to Him by the Father before worlds began. The distinguishing mark then of a true sheep, of one who belongs to the Good Shepherd and was given to Him by the Father in eternity past, is that the sheep hear His voice. They believe His word and they follow Him. So Jesus says, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Down in verse 27 he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. What do sheep do? They hear his voice, they know him. And they follow him. And finally, he says at the end of this good shepherd discourse, he says that those sheep which have been chosen by the Father and given to the Son, whom whom the Son knows and calls by name, those sheep who hear the voice of their good shepherd and they believe and they follow him, he says they will never perish. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give to them everlasting life and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand for I and the Father are one. So here, all of this is ringing in the back of the author of Hebrews' mind when he points us to the great shepherd of the sheep whom the Father brought back from the dead. Here is unshakable confidence for your faith. If you bear the marks of a true sheep, 
you hear his voice in the word of the gospel. When he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. You believe those words are meant for you. And you come by faith. You hear his voice. You believe on him. And you follow him. Those are the marks of the true sheep. And if those are found in your life, then you can look back to eternity past and know with confidence that you were chosen by the Father and given to the Son before worlds began. And you can look into the future and know with certainty that nothing and no one will be able to steal you from the shepherd's grip. Eternity past to eternity future, you are solidly in the golden chain of salvation. And nothing, nothing can come upon you that will wreck your soul. Your future perseverance, says Jesus, is anchored in your eternal election. Third, the God of peace sent the great shepherd of his sheep to save the sheep by dying and rising again. Again, that's made explicit in John chapter 10. In fact, Jesus says this is how the good shepherd saves his sheep. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. This commandment I received from my Father. Keep that in your back pocket. So the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Why? Because there's wolves. And the wolves threaten the sheep. Those wolves are sin and death and hell, and they come to steal and to kill and destroy the flock which Jesus has sworn to save. And so the good shepherd went out to meet these wolves, and he stepped in between them and the flock whom he loves, and he laid down his life, allowing these wolves to attack and kill him instead of the flock. And in the process of his dying for his sheep, he killed the wolves. And they no longer pose any threat to his flock. But the story doesn't end there. He doesn't just say, I have authority to lay down my life. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The story does not end with one dead shepherd and three dead wolves. Because on the third day, the God of peace brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. So that he is now alive to shepherd his flock. And to lead them into his eternal dwelling. Jesus goes on from there to make that great declaration about how none will ever snatch the sheep out of my hand. And you've got to ask yourself, how can he be so sure? How can he be so certain, making this triumphant claim that not one of his sheep will ever perish and that no one will ever snatch them out of his hand? He can be so sure because the wolves are dead and the shepherd is alive. And the shepherd is alive to shepherd his sheep, to lead them to green pastures and to still waters, to lead them safely through the valley of the shadow of death, and to guide them into their everlasting home where they will dwell in the presence of the Lord forever. Number four, the God of peace sent the great shepherd to save the sheep by dying and rising again, thus securing and sealing 
the eternal covenant between God and His chosen people. What is this eternal, eternal covenant? What is he talking about? Is this the new covenant? What covenant are we dealing with here? Because nowhere else has he used the phrase the eternal covenant. The new covenant is a part of it, but this covenant stretches back into eternity past. Before the foundations of the world, foreknowing, wrap your mind around some eternal things this morning, foreknowing that humanity would fall into temptation and sin and destruction, a covenant was made among the three members of the Trinity to save a people from judgment and death and hell. The Father determined to save a chosen people upon the following conditions. Number one, that the Son should become man and stand as the head of a new and redeemed humanity. Number two, that he should fulfill the law in perfect righteousness on behalf of his people and suffer the wrath of God in their place and by his blood thereby make full atonement for their sins. So three conditions made up the son's end of this eternal covenant to save a people. Number one, the son should become man and stand as the head of a new redeemed humanity. Number two, That he should fulfill the law in perfect righteousness on behalf of his people, thus succeeding where Adam had failed. Remember that second Adam sermon? Hebrews chapter 7. And number three, that the son should bear the judgment of his people and suffer the wrath of God in their place by his blood, making full atonement for their sins. In return, the father promised the son, number one, to raise him from the dead, number two, to seat him at the right hand, and number three, to give to him the worship of all creation. For this reason also, Paul says in Philippians chapter two, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. For what reason? Because Jesus humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus fulfilled his conditions And so Paul says the Father fulfilled His. For this reason also, God highly exalted Him and gave to Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The worship of all creation belongs to the Son because the Son kept the conditions of the covenant by dying and rising again. That's why the author says that the God of peace brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant. Because Jesus fulfilled the covenant by shedding his blood to save his people, God fulfilled the covenant by raising him from the dead and glorifying him as Lord of all. And this should bring you tremendous comfort and confidence that you will persevere in faith to the very end because you are right in the center of this eternal covenant. The conditions for which have been fully and finally and forever met in the death and the resurrection of the great shepherd of the sheep. All of the conditions are met on both sides, the Son and the Father, and they covenanted together to save you. So guess what? You're going to be saved. Who will bring a charge against one of God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who is raised, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and who also intercedes for us. No charge of sin can be brought against you. No condemnation will stand against you. Because Christ died, was raised, and is exalted to the Father's right hand as Lord of all, having forever secured and sealed the eternal covenant of grace. There is no more firm foundation for your faith and confidence than that. You are the recipient of an unconditional covenant. The conditions having been entirely met for you by the Father and the Son. Fifth, the God of peace sent the great shepherd to save the sheep by dying and rising again, thus securing and sealing the eternal covenant between God and his chosen people to preserve you in faith to the very end. And now we move into verse 21. Now the God of peace equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Lots of prepositions in there and they're all important. Good theology is built upon prepositions. Bad theology ignores the prepositions and inserts whatever it wants in there. So we're going to pay attention to the prepositions. One thing that should be crystal clear from this past year in Hebrews is that perseverance in faith and growth in holiness are essential to our final salvation. You will not be saved unless you persevere to the end, and unless you pursue that holiness, you will not see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. Are we clear on that? Because we spent like eight weeks covering those topics scattered throughout these 13 chapters. The warning against falling away, the exhortations to finish the race, the appeal to pursue that holiness without which no one will see the Lord make it abundantly clear that if you do not finish the race of faith, you will not be saved. So, how can I possibly have a deep and abiding assurance in the midst of all of these passages that tell me I've got to make it and warn me against hell if I don't? Has anybody asked that question? How can I have confidence if my everlasting salvation depends on making it to the finish line? What if I fall away? What what if I stumble and drop out of the race? How can we still have a salvation that is by grace alone if salvation is dependent upon my perseverance and sanctification? Here is the answer, and it's beautiful. By his blood, which secured the eternal covenant, and by his resurrection and ascension through which he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts by faith, Jesus guaranteed your perseverance and sanctification. Jesus died to purchase your faith, your perseverance, and your growth in holiness. Jesus died to purchase infallibly the full and final salvation of his sheep. Therefore, not one of his sheep will fail to persevere in faith. And not one of his sheep will perish 
And not one of his sheep will fail to pursue that sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. You, believer, sheep, you will make it to the end because Jesus died and shed his blood to make it so. And you will continually pursue holiness because Jesus rose again and ascended on high and sent his spirit to dwell within you and to change you from glory to glory. You're going to make it. Because your salvation was purchased in Christ and He has assured it by sending His Spirit into your hearts. It is all His work. The God of peace, look at verse 21, equips you in every good thing, perseverance, holiness. He equips you by working in you what is pleasing to Him. He causes you to please Him. That's perseverance by the sovereign grace of God. The God of peace works in us that which is pleasing in His sight. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. How do you find those things happening in your life? God is working in you that which is pleasing to Him. His Spirit is cultivating fruit. He is saving you and keeping you saved. The call of Hebrews, the call to perseverance, is not a call to works and self-effort and tireless religious activity and just, just try harder to be better. That's not the call of Hebrews. The call is to rest by faith in the sovereign and sufficient grace of God, trusting Him to equip you to do that which is pleasing in His sight. You will continue to believe and continue to press forward and continue to pursue holiness because Jesus died and rose again to make it so. Number six. Your salvation is entirely the work of God. Through Jesus Christ. Did you notice that phrase? May He equip you to do that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, which is why to Him belongs the glory forever and ever. So finally, let's put it all together. The God of peace sent the great shepherd to save the sheep by dying and rising again, thus securing and sealing the eternal covenant between God and His chosen people. To preserve you in faith and obedience to the end unto his everlasting glory. There will be no one, not one in heaven, who stands before the throne and boasts in the strength of their faith. In the strength of their resolve, in the strength of their commitment, in the strength of their endurance. Not one. But there will be a multitude that no one can count. From every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hand, who are bowing before the throne and singing, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Because everyone who gets there has come to realize this truth. 
that God equips us to do that which is pleasing to Him, working in us what is pleasing to His will. And this should give you great comfort and encouragement to rest in the sovereign and sufficient grace of God this morning because God's purpose from all of eternity has been to glorify Himself through Jesus Christ in the salvation of His holy people. And God will never allow that purpose to fail. So this is how we should conclude a year-long study of the book of Hebrews. Not by working, but by resting. Not by striving, but by believing. Trusting in the eternally secured covenant in Christ and joining with that multitude who are around the throne in heaven and who are reveling in the glory of our great shepherd and who follow him as he leads us to the springs of the water of life where God wipes every tear from our eyes. Because there can be no tears where Jesus reigns. Only righteousness and peace and joy that never ends. So I invite you this morning to a foretaste of that eternal joy. As we worship and as we come to the table of His grace, I invite you as we stand in just a moment and sing blessing and honor and glory and power belong to our God. And as we approach the table and hear these words spoken over us, this is my body which was given for you and this is my blood which secured the eternal covenant which I shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. That these, these truths and this assurance and confidence is sealed and secured in our hearts so that when we say the final amen in this service, we walk out happy and hopeful and confident that we're going to make it to the end because the book of Hebrews says so. God loves you. And He sent His Son so that He could love you without end. You can trust Him. You're going to make it. Christ gave His body and blood to make it so.